Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Professor Naomi Rogers. She is a professor of history at Yale University. I'll let her tell us a little bit about herself. Hi, everyone. It's great to be have a chance to talk with Max. Um, my uh, One of my major areas is the history of polio. I've written about um, public health and polio, and also polio and uh, clinical care. Um, I also uh, study uh, disability history, which of course is an, an offshoot from uh, being a historian of polio, uh, as well as um, gender and health. I was so lucky to be in your class a few years ago on the, that seminars of history of medicine and public health. So I, I remember covering some of these topics. Um, Professor Rogers, you know, since the pandemic started, uh, many of us have looked back at, you know, prior pandemics um, to sort of draw lessons and think about like, you know, how did things go back then with, you know, with in terms of trying to stop the pandemic, trying to come up with the vaccine and, uh, you know, getting people to uh, to say, yes, I will take the vaccine. So there, there's just like lots of parallels when you look back um, at, you know, at the at polio wars, like, you know, your, your, book, your book's title and, and, and looking at today. And so one thing that I'm curious about is, you know, there's almost not so much a parallel, but like a opposite situation. When you look back at polio uh, in that initially, um, there was a perception during the polio pandemic that polio was a white person's disease. Can you say more about that? Absolutely. Uh, this is something I'm really uh, interested in. So um, uh, by the time that uh, Franklin Roosevelt, um, and who was then uh, an aspiring politician and a lawyer, um, got uh, polio, um, that uh, up to that point, it was seen as a children's disease. And when you looked at the racial background of most of the children, um, really uh, through the 1920s and 30s, most of them were white. Um, in my uh, first book, I uh, trace this awareness of the majority of, of children being white and the desperate effort by many public health officials to identify um, ethnicities, immigrant background, to somehow turn polio into the kind of disease that they were used to in which you, you first and foremost blamed immigrants, right? Immigrants um, were supposedly the people who were uh, most likely to um, originate a disease and to be the source of its spread. But polio really didn't work that way. In fact, um, in some ways, polio was uh, actually um, a white um, middle-class disease. Uh, and to understand that, you have to know a little bit about polio. Polio is very, uh, um, in one way, polio is a lot like COVID because it spreads, uh, um, it's very infectious. It spreads rapidly around uh, population. Um, and it's also largely invisible. The infection is largely invisible. So that um, it's actually quite rare for anybody to develop uh, symptom, uh, visible symptoms to polio because most people are exposed when they're infants. Um, and it's a rare uh, person who's protected 
from exposure to the virus until they're a bit older, maybe six, maybe seven. Um, Roosevelt um, was in his uh, early 30s, I believe, which shows you what kind of protected background he'd had as a child of a, a wealthy um, family with a separate estate where he went to um, special elite schools and, and so on. Um, and what happens is if you are exposed to the, to the virus and everyone is exposed at some point and you are older, you are more likely, which is true of measles and mumps and various other kinds of diseases, to have more serious symptoms. And in polio's case, that is often um, uh, results in paralysis. And, um, and that's the scary part of polio. Um, and so what you see uh, in the early and mid 20th century is um, a reflection on rising standards of sanitation and childcare. Um, and as uh, white families and then middle-class uh, black families began to protect their children, um, the children were not exposed to the polio virus until they were a bit older. And that was the danger moment. Mm -hmm. And so there was a moment where, you know, if you basically, if you looked at the data in the South, that's where it became clear that polio wasn't a white disease per se, right? How did that, how did that occur? How did that twist? Okay, so the South, the, the South, um, the Southern states uh, created quite a, an epidemiological problem um, because before um, uh, polio um, as a public health problem was fully understood, the fact that there were so few cases in the South uh, among white or black children um, was really puzzling. Um, and polio epidemics only emerged uh, in the South um, after the Second World War in the late 40s and during the 1950s. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason is that the South was so poor. It was so poor that um, most families uh, probably were exposed and had their children exposed to the virus when they were infants. Um, and so as standards of living uh, um, rise in the South, you start to get white cases and also black cases. Mm -hmm. um, and the South provided a very powerful example um, uh, against a theory that had been uh, proposed before that, which is that somehow Black children were immune to polio, right? There were so few of them that perhaps there was something about Black bodies that suggested that it, they were somehow differently constituted. Um, but the epidemics that emerged in the South uh, showed absolutely that polio ravaged uh, communities of color, just as it is other white communities. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, it is in the South that President Roosevelt uh, uh, went down, right, for, to hang yes. out. When Roosevelt was paralyzed, um, he was very dissatisfied with the care that he got, and he got the best care in the country. Um, and he was determined, he had, he had, both of his legs were paralyzed and he was determined to walk again and he wanted to return to political life. And mm -hmm. it was clear to him that nobody who couldn't walk could ever, you know, be a serious politician. So he um, began to explore what you might call sort of alternative sources to try to find something. And he heard about a place in Georgia, um, a small town, 
um, with mineral springs, um, heated mineral springs, where supposedly if you swim in them, you know, you, you gained your health back. And so um, there was a rundown hotel in this place called Warm Spring. And mm -hmm. he went down to Georgia and uh, stayed there and swam in the springs. And um, he began to feel better. Now, when I say feel better, I don't mean that he regained um, the use of his legs. He was always paralyzed. Mm -hmm. But he gained a, a sense of health and a, um, a sense of tranquility. And he also began to feel that this should be a place uh, for uh, polio rehabilitation for other people, not just for himself. Mm -hmm. And in fact, actually, before even then, he bought it and turned it into a polio rehab center. But even before he bought it, uh, people began coming there because they heard that he was there and they hoped that there was something in the springs or something that would help something them. Something in the water. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that's very interesting about Warm Springs is soon became a major uh, uh, institution. Um, associated with uh, caring for people uh, with polio is that it was in the uh, deep rural south mm -hmm. and uh, the Democratic Party, um, especially after Roosevelt was elected president in 1932, um, was the, uh, uh, the, the, the power source of the Democratic Party were white Southern Democrats, including Georgia, Democrats. Uh -huh. And so Roosevelt was very concerned that these people continued to be supporters of his New Deal, so that he absolutely uh, never tried to um, uh, desegregate uh, Warm Springs. It was always a place for only white patients uh -huh. until after 1945, and um, only hired white healthcare providers, physical uh -huh. therapists, doctors, nurses. Now, I don't want to give the impression that it was a white-only institution. In fact, there were many Black people who worked at Warm Springs. They were janitors, they were cooks, they were what was called push boys. They helped um, move patients around. Um, they were gardeners. I mean, there were many, many African-Americans. Um, there were also entertainers who came in um, sometime to entertain the, the patients. Um, but they were not uh, welcome as patients. Uh. Um, and this became um, a political problem for Roosevelt by the late 1930s as the Democratic Party sought to expand its African-American support. Right. And many people said, well, look at Warm Springs. You know, that's a terrible example of um, the way you've caved into white racist um, uh, Georgia politicians. And um, the trustees of Warm Springs actually had a conversation, probably more than one conversation about this. Um, and they considered maybe opening a special cottage for Black children, but then they decided, no, that too many people uh, already at Warm Springs would be uncomfortable with that. And so they finally decided that what they would do is to have the, the polio charity that Roosevelt was the uh, patron of, the March of Dimes, to fund a separate kind of Warm Springs. Now, the March of Dimes never founded a Black Warm Springs. There was never a Black Warm Springs. But they did um, fund a Black polio hospital um, in Tuskegee, right. the center of um, 
uh, with already with uh, significant training of uh, black nurses and uh, a hospital run by black doctors and black administrators. Um, so you can understand that that was a, a, a very a powerful sort of response to the effort to integrate um, uh, warm springs. Now, uh, by the end of the Second World War, uh, segregated institutions were becoming somewhat more politically difficult. I, I don't want to, in any way to suggest that segregation had disappeared by the end of the Second World War, but people had come up with um, uh, more convoluted ways to defend it. And the March of Dimes, which was a national organization, was under enormous pressure to show mm. that it was not racist. Uh, it hired its first uh, black um, uh, official, Charles Bynum, who uh, traveled around to black communities all around the country to raise money. Now, if you're going to try to raise money among African-American uh, donors, you would better have, you know, a good argument to prove that the March of Dimes doesn't discriminate. Um, and uh, by the end of 1945, Charles Bynum did actually announce that there were some black patients at Warm Springs. So right. I've tried to look into this. I think there were briefly, I think they were cared for in the basement at Warm Springs and then they sort of disappeared. Um, and um, I have a picture of a, a, a really striking picture of Warm Springs in 1950. Um, they had a movie theater in Warm Springs. And this is a picture of the inside of the movie theater. You see the audience and then you see the doctors and the nurses and many, many patients, some of them um, in beds, some of them sitting up. And then you see a white picket fence uh -huh. um, along the front of the seats, um, uh, just between the second row and the third row. And sitting in the first and the second row, are the people who work at Warm, at Warm Springs. So you see uh, cooks and maids uh, also watching the movie um, segregated by this white picket fence. So in no way would I argue that somehow Warm Springs became in any way uh, medically or socially uh, integrated. integrated. Right. And so it's interesting because Tuskegee was underfunded compared to Warm Springs, even though the March of Dimes was trying to raise funds, including from black uh, uh, from black middle class people, right? Well, it's certainly true that the Tuskegee Polio Hospital, which um, uh, opened in 1941, uh, was very small. Didn't mm -hmm. have very many people, and there was no way it could possibly care for um, any kind of significant number of. Um, black patients with polio. Mm -hmm. um, it really prided itself actually on being a training hospital and mm -hmm. it trained black orthopedists and black nurses in the latest uh, polio techniques. And in that it was very important and very successful. But as a site of care, no, it was really small and, and certainly not uh, funded enough. But of course, also by this time, the March of Dimes was trying um, not to fund separate centers. It wanted polio patients around the country to be cared for with the best care possible in general hospitals. Um, 
And of course, there was also a racial argument, which which uh, suggested that um, black patients needing polio care should be able to be treated in their local hospitals, just like white patients. And mm -hmm. even though this wasn't true yet, right, it didn't actually happen. Um, that was the model for the March of Dimes. So much of the, the money that was raised by uh, state chapters in every state had a March of Dimes branch. 50% uh, of that money uh, was sent back to the chapters that raised it in order to pay for polio care for um, the uh, patients in their state. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because today the March of Dimes, one of their you know, prime missions is to address uh, racial inequity in um, maternal and child health outcomes, right? What a, what a complete change in trajectory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, and then when I think about the vaccine, for polio, you know, we had two vaccines. One of the vaccines, the first one had kind of a little bit of a controversy because of issues related to uh, manuf manufacturing safety. Um, what was the acceptance, right? Um, in terms of um, like, in, you know, including black people in the vaccine trials, um, because by the time um, Salk was the first one, right? Yeah. By the time Salk, were running vaccine trials, um, it was now accepted that yes, polio also affects black people. Um, yes. So how, how did that go in terms of um, getting vaccine uh, trial participation uh, across racial groups? So firstly, to just to say that just like COVID, uh, polio was a terribly frightening disease. Mm -hmm. um, and parents everywhere, um, uh, were were terrified that their children would get polio, polio paralysis, and that then they would they would be marked for life. They would um, maybe not even be able to go to school anymore or college or get a good job. Um, and uh, uh, there was such um, discrimination against um, physically disabled people. Mm -hmm. um, so that made polio really, really scary. So um, there was a, a yearning for a polio vaccine. Um, and we we don't know quite as much about um, vaccine hesitancy in the 1950s and 60s as I, as I would like to know. Uh, certainly there was a group of um, uh, sort of uh, naturopaths um, uh, one of the centers was in uh, Florida, who argued that um, the that the claims that polio was spread by a virus were completely wrong. That in fact the reason that children were getting polio is that the American diet had too much sugar and salt in it. And mm. can I just point out that in the 1950s, in fact, this is the expansion of fast food, right? This is the the founding of uh, McDonald's and Kentucky Fried and so on. And so it's absolutely true. There was incredible uh, expansion of sugar and salt in the diet of children. Um, and But the argument was that if you just change the way that your children ate, then they would be, then their immune system would be strong and uh, they would not develop paralysis. So this was the, the anti-vaccine um, uh, argument. Mm -hmm. um, but we, but um, it's, 
all that I've ever read suggested that everybody really, really wanted a, a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And the March of Dimes uh, funded uh, the clinical trial for Jonas Salk's vaccine, and they had paid for the research before that. Um, and it was found safe and effective. Um, and one of the um, way and, and the way that this clinical trial took place, and this is where the March of Dimes was very careful in its racial research politics, was that it was um, uh, given in schools. Um, and they made sure that children in black schools also received the vaccine or the placebo during the clinical trial, um, uh, just like white children did. Mm -hmm. Um, and indeed, in black schools, um, black nurses and doctors were usually the ones in charge of that. Um, and then when it was found to be safe and effective, um, it was the uh, vaccine was then given in schools. I mean, mm -hmm. they found that schools had worked really well. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's I've found one very uh, powerful picture from 1955. So this would have been once the vaccine had been found to, to be safe um, of a white school and um, children in the white school lining up to get vaccinated. And then a bus coming in and black children getting off the bus because they had been bused to this school uh -huh. to also receive their vaccine. And then once they got the vaccine, they would be bused back to their black school. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of, I hear a lot of parallels, right, um, when I hear about what went on during the times of polio in terms of hospital segregation and mm -hmm. the sort of racial concordance between provider and patient. I mean, um, all of this is happening. And in the background, we have, you know, organizations like the AMA um, uh, who have sort of like yet to fully integrate. Um, th th there's... There are issues in terms of healthcare access with the fight for Medicare and Medicaid. And at the time also, uh, like you mentioned, right? The, the, the polio doubters who are bringing up um, salt and sugar in a diet. Like it all looks like today where we're in a space where we're in the middle of a fight for greater healthcare, right? Where many of us want Medicare for all, right? Hospitals are still fairly segregated, right? Uh, and um, and not, not nearly as explicitly as they were back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, but nonetheless, across and within hospital segregation is a, is a, is a concern today still. And something that strikes me is the way in which comorbidities are used, almost kind of wielded against people who are dying of COVID, right? When it became clear what were the comorbidities associated with greater COVID mortality? People say, well, it's because they're fat. It's because they have hypertension. It's because they have diabetes. If they didn't have all those things, then they wouldn't die uh, right. of those things, right? Um, but except on the flip side, nowadays or with COVID, um, the moment that people found out um, that COVID was disproportionately affecting uh, black and brown people, uh, white people in who are part of the sort of like COVID denialism movement. I mean, they, they got on TV and said, well, when I look at the demographics who, who, who are being affected, 
I, I, I'm fine, right? Uh, this was on TV, on CNN. This was in newspapers and the Washington Post. So the, the parallels are crazy. It's, they're both like parallel and anti-parallels with the times. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that um, I, I, you know, I want to hear your thoughts about is the way the presidents handled it, right? Because President Roosevelt had polio himself before he became president, whereas President Trump um, contracted COVID while president, right? Um, and they had sort of diametrically opposed approaches to managing um, COVID um, versus polio. But at the same time, they each leveraged, each, you know, like Roosevelt leveraged polio for political good in some way, right? And so did Trump in, a, in, in his own kind of way. I want to hear you discuss. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting yeah. um, comparison. Um, I actually think I see a couple more similarities as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Roosevelt uh, was uh, uh, paralyzed um, just after he had run unsuccessfully as the vice presidential candidate for the Democratic Party mm-hmm. um, a- in 1921. And um he and his mother said to him, well, you know, you're never going to be a politician. Why don't you uh, go to Europe in a wheelchair and go and collect art or something? You know, what wealthy disabled people do. Um, and he said, no, I want to return to political life and I'm going to find a way to um, walk again. So he was never able to find a way to walk again. But what he was able to do was to find a way to convince millions of people that he had conquered polio uh-huh. uh, in, in much the same way that, that Trump boasted that, yes, he had got COVID, but that he had overcome it, right? Uh-huh. Um, and uh, in Roosevelt's uh, case, uh, it was even more insidious because he really tried to present himself uh, as a non-paralyzed person. Um, uh-huh. And uh, he uh, used locked uh, braces, uh, full leg braces, so and then would lean on the arms of his uh, sons or sometimes secret service so that it did sort of look like he was walking. Um, and uh, when he was uh, in a car, uh, he had... Um, uh, all the major government buildings build uh, temporary ramps, not permanent ramps, but temporary ramps, so that his car could go all the way up the, to the uh, door, and then the Secret Service would carry him in. Um, any any reporter who tried to take pictures of this had their cameras knocked out of their hands and the film ripped out. And so soon reporters learned that you know, just didn't do that. There were no pictures of Roosevelt being carried ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are very, very few pictures of Roosevelt in a wheelchair, maybe three that I've ever seen. Um, and um, and so it, there was a denialism here um, because he and his advisors believed that Americans would never elect or re-elect or, or trust a disabled man as president. So instead, he was a heroic man who mm-hmm. had overcome polio. And and he and in that role, uh, he was uh, very happy to be a patron of polio 
uh, fundraising and the March of Dimes and uh -huh. so on, inspiring many people around the world uh, in the sort of, you know, if Roosevelt can you do it, you can do it kind uh -huh. of. Got it. Yeah, it's interesting that, that there is that mix of both denialism and acknowledgement of yeah. polio mm -hmm. as a danger mm -hmm. um, that he used to sort of help facilitate, um, uh, uh, you know, improving the, the state of research for polio. Yes. But, you know, this past year, we saw a president who got COVID and then sort of like pumped his heroism and told people, don't let COVID ruin your life. Go on about your life. Look, I got COVID and I'm fine. So there, I, I see definitely see some similarities in the, in the denialism aspect of it and the bravado of, of, um, mm -hmm. of this heroic, uh, or pseudo heroic man, uh, but then there's this element of kind of just not caring in some ways, right? Um, about so, yeah. So let me say a little bit about some of the the, the differences also. So um, uh, many people have argued, and in fact, his wife Eleanor used to argue that the struggle that um, Roosevelt had undergone um, after he got polio throughout the 1920s until he ran for governor of New York in 1928 uh, really transformed him from a um, elite, privileged, white um, uh, uh, member of a, a, a political aristocracy to someone who really understood pain and suffering. Uh -huh. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt used to say, you know, if you've spent a year trying to move one of your toes, you really can understand the suffering of, of uh, uh, people, the American people. Um, and so he, in fact, uh, was able to use this real lived experience of pain and, and suffering and frustration um, when he was elected president. Um, and proved to be a quite uh, humane president looking for ways to help uh, desperate, um, unemployed, hungry people um, and to set up um, a, really a new um, uh, vision of um, activist federal government um, in order to help people, including uh, funding of uh, numbers of clinics and public health departments. He was uh -huh. stymied in some ways by the AMA and by uh, conservative Republicans who were very suspicious of anything like a national health system. But within the the you know the political world that um, that Roosevelt lived, he was um, really uh, able to address uh, problems of. Uh, ill health and hunger, um, uh, homelessness, and so on. So in in many ways, it did help to humanize him, certainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the next thing that makes me think of, especially since we're in this fight for a potential uh, form of universal health care mm -hmm. today, um, mm -hmm. is similarly, right, like the amount of suffering that Roosevelt went through before he became president is mm -hmm. kind of how... Joe Biden is portrayed, right? He he lost his wife in in, uh, in a tragic car accident uh, and lost his child to cancer. Uh, he he has really met tragedy, right? And people say 
he is a man who cares, right? Because he knows what suffering is like. And that's sort of been part of his um, uh, uh, almost like political buffer, right? Like mm-hmm. Joe Biden, um, he's not untouchable, but, but it's certainly the amount of suffering he's gone through has been used to, uh, to explain how much he will relate to the American people. Um, and I wonder how much that would translate into, um, into, into actual, you know, uh, political largesse in terms of his, uh, uh, you know, uh, policymaking compared to Roosevelt back then. Now that's, of course, you know, the $64 million question. Uh, but I think that it, it's certainly true that uh, Joe Biden is a man of empathy, um, that he has suffered, and he's also been able to articulate what that suffering has meant to him as a public figure, as well as a private man. He's, he's been able to, to talk about that. Um, I heard him speak actually at um, the uh, Yale College commencement a couple of uh, years ago while he was uh, Obama's uh, vice president. Um, and he did a really lovely job uh, which I'm sure he does elsewhere too, of linking this, uh, these earlier experiences to his vision um, of um, uh, the future, the administration and the, f- and, uh, the future of America, um, just how this will actually um, materialize uh, once he's actually president, we'll, we'll have to see. Uh, but it's certainly a great basis. Well, I always felt that when President Trump would say things like um, um, he he regrets every life lost, right? When he was talking about COVID, that never seemed believable, right? Mm-hmm. It never seemed like he really did. It mm-hmm. seemed like a line that he would say in order to not address the particulars of people suffering and dying, right? Those were not things he wanted to talk about, but he would just say, well, yes, every every life lost is, you know. And um, and that was clearly part of a, a lack of, em- of empathy. For, for um, Trump, that kind of empathy doesn't have any political valence for him it's not useful for him it doesn't uh-huh. inform what he's trying to do um and so largely actually and of course the, the sad thing has been and during COVID um he hasn't really tried to to pretend it either um and so it was a very interesting moment when he did get COVID um in which he firstly downplayed his own symptoms and his own suffering um he made sure that his major physician and the medical team uh, did not um, uh, give uh, many details at all, uh, often quite oddly, right? So that you you ended up not quite believing what his physician from the hospital was saying or feeling that he was leaving out a lot. Um, and then he was able to make the argument that um, it had really made him stronger, right? Mm-hmm. And presumably immune for life, although that's not something that um, anybody can can say definitively. It's definitely um, not true. It wins. Right. <laughs> uh, 
you know, but but if you want to present yourself as as superhuman, then you definitely need to mention how you've gone through this trial, being COVID, and you are now, you know, um, immune for life. Mm-hmm. Totally. Uh, one thing that still sticks though with President Roosevelt, as empathetic as he was, and as um, as uh, uh, as much as he supported a. a federal government that would really care for the people is his complacency when it came to racism, right? Um, uh, I mean, you mentioned how he he never wanted to poke the bear in the South because that's who his supporters were. And I, I mean, with Donald Trump, it's not complacency, right? It's like embracing of racism. Uh, and with Joe Biden, it's more of a hesitancy uh, when it comes to openly confronting, you know, this sort of like both sidism um, every time that he talks about a racist incident or some issues related to structural racism. And I'm just wondering how that shapes, uh, you know, President Roosevelt's like policies back then, both in terms of addressing polio and, and more generally um, in uh, addressing uh, inequality uh, mm-hmm. and, and what that might mean, right, for uh, this Biden administration. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say that when I think about Roosevelt, and I have enormous respect for uh, what he was able to achieve, he mm-hmm. did, however, offer a very disturbing model for um, uh, later um, liberal politicians, mm-hmm. which was that you could um, create um, uh, a uh, uh, federal system with um, quite good um, safety nets for certain members of the population. Mm-hmm. But when it came to fights around race, you deferred. Mm-hmm. So that when, for example, he passed Social Security, which at the time was a huge fight, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, Republicans said in Congress that, you know, uh, why didn't, you know, Roosevelt just, uh, you know, raise the Soviet Union's flag above with the White House, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if we were all going to go communist with a Social Security. Um, but at the same time, he deliberately, in order to be able to keep the support of white Southern Democrats in the in the House and the Senate, he exempted farm laborers and domestic servants. Mm-hmm. And we know who the majority of farm laborers and domestic servants were. Um, and so he was very careful to um, uh, create a system that was uh, absolutely transformative. There's no question about that, but it had these huge racial holes that took many decades to to close up. Um, And so his, um, and for example, he never was willing to support an anti-lynching law of any kind. Which just passed in the Senate like this past year, right? And Kamala Harris was fighting uh, for it on the Senate floor. But think about what you're saying, right? Right. Uh, Roosevelt died in 1945. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, so that he really created a model for a liberal reformer, which is that you could uh, support the expanding of government services, but you also could be comfortable 
um, not addressing structural racism, just mm -hmm. sort of putting it to the side for now. And there's some really wonderful stories in Robert Caro's um, multi-volume biography of Lyndon Johnson, where um, Johnson really coming out of this uh, tradition um, uh, feels uh, really until the 1960s that he constantly has to um, make sure that um, other white Southerners, now he's from Texas, which is a somewhat uh, you know, odd Southern state, but that he has to show his um, uh, racist credentials. Right. Gain Senate support for other issues. And over and over again, he does that. Um, weakens a, a civil rights um, uh, bill. bill in the late 1950s and and so you know he continually plays explicitly plays this race card um until uh he actually becomes president and then of course pushed by civil rights leaders like martin luther king jr among others um he uh, begins to close the holes right and so given our current political landscape right um it isn't as easy for them to, uh, for Joe Biden and others, right, to sort of like explicitly endorse um, uh, racist type policies like what um, went through with the Social Security Act. But I, I get the sense that there's a level of austerity there that that's the subliminal uh, message in uh, when passing or when, when when putting forth any proposal that are otherwise meant to be um, uh, 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 helpful, right, for, for the poor. Um, and, and, and so that's really what I'm trying to get at in terms of how is this going to shape the next four to eight years? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that, um, I, I mean, among many other challenges that Biden faces is this association um, that Roosevelt began and, and Johnson sort of added to which is that expanding government services uh, supposedly take money out of your pocket, right? Mm -hmm. um, and worse, in the 60s, um, that money that's taken out of your pocket is given to um, undeserving other people, especially people of color. Mm -hmm. um, so it's both um, uh, uh, taxes that are too high and also um, uh, population groups who don't deserve it. Um, and those two things are very, very difficult um, to uh, separate or for people to think about in any other way. So that when people call for Medicare for all, what they, what they, they can hear uh, is higher taxes, um, unworthy people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that these are issues that the Biden administration are gonna, is going to have to address head on. Right. right? It's really not uh, um, it, Medicare for all it, in many ways has to be sold carefully. Right. Mm -hmm. so Biden has come out in favor of a public option for the Affordable Care Act. Right. It's almost but like pussyfooting. Right. Which is certainly better than nothing. And, um, you know, it may well be that you know, initially in the Biden administration, there'll be a whole series of things that we all describe as better than nothing. Um, mm -hmm. 
I don't know. I don't know how he said how he's and Harris are going to govern. Um, but these are really profound um, uh, political issues um, that trying to expand uh, the the social safety net has to confront. You can't just sort of say, "Oh, but this is the the good thing to do." All right, you know, voters don't hear this as a good thing to do. It, right. They worry about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Professor Rogers, thank you so much. This was a delight. I really enjoyed learning again from you. Um, and, you know, I am looking forward to um, seeing, you know, what uh, what next you write about the COVID times. Mm -hmm. I uh, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to that also. And um, it was a pleasure to talk uh, with you. And thank you so much for having me. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.